The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Let's read some verses just at the end of Romans chapter 5, at verse 18. Romans 5, at verse 18. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That verse 20 of Romans 5 really is one of the great verses of the Bible, isn't it? Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. It stands like a, a bright beacon on a dark night, and the dark background is sin and its horrible effects and the proliferation of it in the world. And the beacon flashes out this brilliant message that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Such a wonderful sentence that... Uh, it's so difficult to do justice to it. Even in terms of the, the translation of the original words, it's, it's difficult to express the full flavor and the, the strength of what Paul is saying. That where sin increased, grace super increased or super abounded. Many of us reared on the authorized version remember it best. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Or J.B. Phillips, though sin is shown to be wide and deep, thank God his grace is wider and deeper still. And even that doesn't satisfy the commentators. One of them suggests this understanding, that where sin reached a high watermark, grace completely flooded the world. That was the idea that struck me when I heard a story uh, some time ago, uh, about a volcano in Iceland. This volcano in Iceland had become active after many years, and it began to produce heat in excess of 1,000 degrees centigrade. And because it's surrounded by all the ice and the glaciers, all the ice was beginning to melt. And in one place, the story was how the people were waiting for the glacier to burst open in a huge flood of water that would engulf that whole area. And the scientists had estimated that when the flood bursts, it would be like the contents of 200 Olympic-sized swimming pools being released 
every second. Can you imagine that? A huge flood that would sweep everything before it, changing and transforming the whole area. And that's the picture we need to keep in mind when we begin to think of God's grace. Sin is great, but God's grace is greater. Sin affects and influences so many situations, so many lives, but God's grace is more effective. Sin reaches and stretches in every direction, but God's grace reaches and stretches further. And in every place and in every life where sin's power is evident, we need to remember that God's grace is even more powerful. There is no sinful situation which cannot be transformed by the power of God's grace. Eugene Peterson in the message puts it like this. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. Uh, Romans 5.20 was the great verse of John Bunyan's, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. And Bunyan's life and religious experience is spelled out in another book, which is really his autobiography, entitled Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And of course, that title is taken not just from this verse, but from uh, 1 Timothy 1.13. You remember how Bunyan, born 1628, father, a traveling tinker, a mender of pots and pans. And Bunyan also practiced that trade for a while. Later, as a Puritan preacher, he was referred to as the tinker of Bedford. But even though he had been quite profligate as a youth, <clears throat> he became troubled by an acute sense of his personal sin. And for some time, like Pilgrim in his progress, he struggled with that real burden of sin. Eventually, he knew relief as God gave him great peace. And the title of his autobiography is Testimony to What He Discovered, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. No matter how great his sin was, the grace of God is greater. God's grace is not withheld because of sin. And we need to understand that because that's not what normally happens in life and in relationships between people. If you or I are offended by someone, we tend to withdraw from that person, don't we? We pull up the drawbridge, we pull down the shutters, we cease showing any favor or any concern which we might otherwise have extended to them. If someone offends us greatly, it's hard for us even to be civil to them, we stop talking to them. Or if we meet them in the street, we want to look the other way. God's not like that. Where sin increases, grace overflows. What happened when Adam and Eve sinned? They feared that God would withdraw his grace completely. And God had every right to do so. God had been good in giving them the whole garden but they had rebelled against his command. And when God came looking for them, they hid, thinking that God's judgment would be fully executed on them. Instead, what they found was grace abundant. He promised them a savior and a deliverer. The seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. The destroyer would be destroyed. Humankind would be brought back into fellowship with God. And even though Adam and Eve tried to cover their shame and guilt with fig leaves, God intervened in grace, clothed them with coats of skins so that the first blood ever shed by
by God was to provide a covering for sinful Adam and Eve. Grace was not withheld because of their sin. Grace was given in spite of sin. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And it was the same in Moses' day. The law given on Mount Sinai, but whilst Moses was receiving the law, and the commandments on top of the mountain, the people at the bottom of the mountain were breaking every commandment. Was their sin and rebellion a barrier to God's grace? Not at all. Because on that very mountain where God looked down and saw the awful sin of his people, there he gives, gave specifications for the tabernacle and for the altar and for the priesthood. He told them how they might continue to know his presence and his blessing. Sin was as high as Mount Sinai, but God's grace was as high as heaven. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And in the New Testament, it's the same principle. Peter denying his Lord with oaths and curses. But Jesus did not dispense with Peter nor condemn him. He personally appears to Peter after the resurrection and recommissions him to service. Where sin increased in Peter's life, grace increased all the more. And it's exactly the same with Paul, the one who gives us this testimony here. His testimony is virtually identical to that of Bunyan's, which I believe is why Bunyan used Paul's words to describe his own experience. Where sin increased in Paul's life, he says in 1 Timothy, God's grace overflowed to him all the more. It was poured out on him abundantly. And friends, you and I must place ourselves into that same category. That whatever our past, whatever our sinful pattern of life, where sin appears, we cast ourselves back again on the grace of God. No dam erected by sin can hold back the abundant flow of God's grace. God's grace is never withheld because of sin. Not Adam's sin, not Israel's sin, not Peter's sin, not Paul's sin, not John Bunyan's sin, not your sin or not mine's sin. Isn't that amazing? Does that not thrill your heart today? That regardless of what I have done, I can come again and again to my gracious Lord and in him I find full forgiveness. That's grace, amazing, abundant, overflowing grace. The other point I want to make is that God's grace is never reduced because of our sin. The supply of grace is unlimited. Uh, we might be inclined to think that there's only so much grace to go around or that each individual only receives so much grace and then when it's exhausted, there's no more. That's not the case at all. The superabundant supply of grace never runs dry. And you know how that point has been often discussed and debated among Christians. Can a person fall from grace? Is it possible to commit some awful sin and thereby forfeit God's grace and forgiveness? Can a Christian by their own sin and foolishness place themselves beyond God's grace? And we can all think of notable prominent Christians who have committed some sin and brought disgrace and scandal on themselves and on others. And we wonder, how does God view such people? Of course, the Bible gives us many Outstanding examples of men like Moses and David who fell into sin. And having received and experienced the grace of God, 
We wonder, had they, by sinning in some gross way, wasted that treasury of grace that God gave to them? And we think that way because we place limits and boundaries on the grace of God. When Paul says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. It's a wonderful truth and an important truth for us to grasp. Your sin did not keep God's grace from flowing to you in full measure when you came to Christ. And your sin will not keep God's grace from flowing to you now. Even as Christian believers, we still need God's grace, and that grace never fails. And even when sin begins to increase in our lives, grace increases all the more. And here's the amazing and sometimes troubling thing, that it's in our sin that we find grace to be most abundant and overflowing. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The reason why Paul was such a champion of grace was because he'd been forgiven so much. As far as he was concerned, he was the chief of sinners. He topped the premier league of sin. He scored more sin points than anyone else. And because of that, he more than others rejoiced in the abundant grace of God. Our sinful failures do not inhibit the grace of God. In fact, God's grace is seen most clearly against the dark background of our sin. Now you can imagine the logical person thinking or saying at this point, hold on a minute, if God's grace is so marvelous and so unlimited, and if my sin is the occasion for me to experience such grace, wouldn't it make some sense then for me to sin a bit now and again so that I may receive even more grace? If, if when sin increases, God's grace increases all the more, what's the problem with a bit of adultery now and again or the occasional bout of drunkenness? Will my sin not serve to highlight God's grace? And if you're thinking like that, then realize that you're not the first to think so. In fact, that's exactly the question which Paul raises at the beginning of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And Paul's answer to that is clear. By no means. The short answer at this stage is that God never condones sin. God hates sin so much that he sent his only son to die so that you and I might be rescued from its destructive rule and tyranny. God hates sin in your life. He hates it in mine. And he will continue to work in us to remove it and to give us victory over it. But the point is, God will never diminish his grace toward you because of your sin. Don't ever think that you can fall from grace. But you say, doesn't the Bible say that you can fall from grace? Isn't that a biblical expression? Galatians 5, Paul tells the Galatians they have fallen from grace. But that phrase doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. It means you've fallen into a legalistic way of living. The Galatians had been taught the true gospel of salvation through faith in Christ. But they'd got all confused by the legalists. They said it was now necessary for them to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved that the Gentile believers must be circumcised. And Paul wrote to them to encourage them to stand firm in the freedom that Christ had purchased for them. Don't become entangled in legal bondage. So when you fall from grace, in that sense, you don't lose your salvation. 
If you did, then it would mean that sin could diminish grace or sin could defeat grace, and that's impossible. Rather, it means falling into law. You become a miserable legalist instead of a joyful, triumphant Christian. You allow man-made rules to destroy the joy and the freedom you have in Christ. Isn't that a wonderfully liberating doctrine? God's grace always triumphs. Even when sin is at its strongest, God's grace wins hands down. Grace refuses to let you go. Grace will never be defeated in your life. The bright colors of God's grace shine in all their beauty when they're surrounded by the dark and depressing hues of sin. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And our confession reflects that doctrine in chapter 27 when it says, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere there into the end and be eternally saved. In other words, when God sets his love and grace upon us, that grace can never be erased, never withdrawn. It always triumphs. And yet the confession faces up to the reality of Christians not always living like Christians. Even though held secure in God's grace, they may fall into sin. They may, through the temptations of Satan and the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of the means of preservation, fall into grievous sins. And for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. In other words, because of their carelessness, Christians may for a while live with the pain of their own sin. They may suffer as a result but they are not excluded from God's grace. God's grace in their lives is not defeated. It always triumphs. And even when sin increases, grace increases all the more. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your marvelous amazing and superabundant grace. What a marvelous, gracious God you are to extend your grace to sinners like us. And even in our frailty, even in our weakness, you still bind yourself to us with cords that can never be broken. How we thank you for our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who came and tabernacled among us, the one whose glory we saw as that which was full of grace and truth. Lord, help us to live in the confidence that we are the recipients of your grace and that living 
in that grace, we may desire more and more to please you, to follow your ways, to do that which is honoring and glorifying of yourself. Work in our hearts, Lord, even in the early days of this semester. Renew us in our devotion to serve you, even in the task of studying and teaching and learning together. Bless our seminary today, O Lord. Cause your grace to abound to us as individuals and enable us to stand as testimony to the great grace of our marvellous Lord. And we pray in his name. Amen.